Welcome to the Black Women Unfiltered Podcast, a podcast where we encourage and empower Black women to speak their unfiltered truth about life experiences. I am your host, Whitney Sale. Today in the guest chair, we have Erin and Kelly, LCPC. Erin is the first therapist in our Ask a Therapist series. She is a native of San Diego, California, and now lives in Maryland. She received her Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Xavier University of Louisiana, her Master's of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She is the owner and founder of Melanated Wellness, LLC, which is a private psychotherapy and life coaching practice. Her sources of employment also include a therapist at the Victim Assistance and Sexual Assault Program for Montgomery County Department of Human Health Services, in which she works with survivors of crime and trauma, and she is also a contract therapist at Compass Mental Health Consultants, LLC, in addition to working with juveniles with sexual behavior problems. One fun fact about Erin is she is obsessed with Game of Thrones. She will sit and talk to you for hours, even more so if you read the books. When I asked Erin, what does it mean to be a black woman? She responded, such a loaded question. As a black woman, I feel so complex and so multidimensional. I am a creator. I have brought life to this world. I am a healer. I make people's lives whole again. And I am an individual who, if flawed, yet loves extremely hard and deeply while forever growing to be a better human. I love being a black woman and all that it brings to the table. Let's welcome Erin to the chair. Hi, welcome to the chair. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm having like a nostalgic 90s moment. Like when I thought about having you in the chair, I thought about sister, sister, you know, we're not twins. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great show. I actually finished, just like binge watched it on Netflix, like. It's a really good show, especially since my my children enjoyed it as well. So they, especially my littlest one, she's always singing the intro. Yeah. Oh, my (laughs) boo-boo. Yeah. I never thought, like, I would be on a podcast and I'd have you in the chair, but it, like, actually works out. So I'm super excited to have you to talk about this topic. It helps that you're a therapist, so that helps. Um, Congratulations. You just got licensed. Woo-woo. Yes, actually, I've been licensed. It's just that was my provisional license. So a lot of people don't understand when it comes to mental health, there's two stages of licensure, and it depends on which state you live in. So when you get initially licensed, it's a provisional license, like you have your like driver's permit, right? You can still drive, you can still like go do errands and things like that, but someone has to be in the car with you. So that's what my license was when I was at LGPC, which stands for Licensed Graduate Professional Counselor. And so with that, I was still licensed to do therapy. I can do diagnostic assessments. I can do things like that. But I was under somebody's supervision. So I had to meet with somebody weekly to, you know, discuss my cases. And they kind of supervised my notes, kind of, you know, gave, you know, constructive criticism and feedback um, and just, you know, helped me hone my skills as a clinician. And so with that being said, I collected hours 
which, you know, doing therapy and things like that and, you know, writing notes and paperwork and treatment plans. And with that, now I have my full license, which is licensed clinical professional counselor in which it's the same thing as a LGPC, but I'm just not under supervision now. And um, so that's the difference. But yeah, I'm actually fully licensed now. It's just like, oh, now you have your driver's license. You can just drive, you know, without like mom or dad being in the car. So that's how I kind of look at it and explain it to people. But yeah. But thank you. Though. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, I mean, you cleared it up for everybody. So I don't even got to ask questions about that. Thanks. But yes. But each state is different, though. So for my state of Maryland, it was different for, you know, me versus, you know, next door in Virginia, even D.C. There's different requirements for each state. Um, so I can only speak on my experience working in the state of Maryland. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm definitely excited to have you because uh, this is a special episode talking about grieving and then family trauma. So I think that's something that needs to be talked about in our community more and shed light on more. So I'm excited to bring you to the chair. So um, let's jump right in. All right. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, my name is Erin Nkele. I am a licensed clinical professional counselor for the state of Maryland. I have been in the mental health field um, for about four years actively now. Um, I am a native of San Diego, California. I've been living in the Maryland area for the last eight years, I want to say. Um, I truly enjoy watching the seasons. I don't like snow, but other than that, um, <laughs> I do like watching the seasons change, especially being a native of Southern California. Um, I am a wife to my wonderful husband of 10 years. Um, we are college sweethearts. We went at Xavier University, Louisiana, in New Orleans, represent XU in the house. And um, I am a mom to two children, lovely children that keep me on my toes. Um, I have a eight-year-old and a three-year-old. So I can, um, my hands are always busy. Um, little, I like to read. I like to play video games. Um, I like to hang out with my friends and family. So that's a little bit about me. Okay. And you answered how long you've been a therapist or how did you answer that? How long you've been a therapist? Yeah, I've been a therapist. Yeah. I've been a therapist since 2016. I graduated. Well, do you want me to tell you about my like master's education? <clears throat> yeah, you could throw that in there for the guests. They should know it all. Okay. So I received my master's in clinical mental health counseling in 2016 from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. They have a satellite campus here in Washington, D.C. And fun fact, I was part, I was one member of the first graduating class for the program. When I initially started my grad school journey, I was in the counseling psychology program. They presented, I think the between the first semester and second semester of my first year, I think that's when they introduced the program. Um, and so I joined it and here we are today. Um, I've been in the field since 2016. My history actually began in substance use and abuse. And that's where majority of my background comes from. I worked with women and adolescents living in recovery. And moving from there, I currently work with um, trauma survivors and survivors of crime. And so that's kind of my specialty now. I'm finding, um, how do I say it? I'm finding a passion for this population. Um, I truly enjoy working with these individuals as I've been working with this um, agency for over a year now. Um, and it's kind of really honing my skills as a clinician and kind of you know challenging me, but in a good way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what made you want to become a therapist? 
Um, so I am the middle of three girls. And I, so I think, you know, that whole, you know, middle child syndrome, I think it's kind of real, but I've always enjoyed, (laughs) but I've always enjoyed listening to people. I've always been the type to kind of like sit in the corner and kind of just like observe people. Um, I never noticed that was like a thing you could do until I went to college. Um, but I've always enjoyed listening to people and kind of talking to them. I've always been that kind of friend that people would like come to and ask for you know advice or like oh what should I do you know these are my options I kind of would talk to them about it um but I always knew I wanted to help people so I thought I could do that in the medical field um and so I wanted to be an obstetrician because I like babies I was like I don't really want to be a pediatrician because I don't want to deal with sick babies but you know I think I could do the delivery portion um and so when I went to Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans um in 2005 I was enrolled in the psychology pre-med program at Xavier. They have pre-med routes. So you can be a psychology major, a biology major, or a chemistry major on a pre-med route, right? Because Xavier is one of the number one schools to send their um, African-American students to medical school. And so I was like, okay, I'll go there. But it should have clicked to me that I picked psychology pre-med as my route versus biology or chemistry when I wanted to be a doctor, right? That should have clicked in my head, but it did not. Um, And so I went the whole route. I'm going to med school, med school, taking these chemistry, bio classes, doing all that kind of stuff, taking general psych, not really any core classes quite yet. And here comes junior year. And uh, at Xavier junior year, that's when they kind of like if you're in the pre-med route, like you're part of a pre-med like program, like everybody's enrolled. You kind of you have weekly meetings, you have assignments and things to do um, as your journey is to you know, end up in medical school. And so junior year, that's when we had to sign up for MCAT classes. And so, you know, going ahead, signing them up. And the first session, our tutor, our teacher comes in and he was like, let me tell you this, because he's a doctor. So he was like, the first two years of medical school is organic chemistry and what did he say? Organic chemistry and physics, I think. And I was just like, oh no, because I was already struggling in physics. I took organic chemistry the year before and it was a struggle. So I was like, oh, I can't do this. Simultaneously, I was also taking abnormal psychology. And so shout out to Dr. Eugenia Valentine. Um, she's one of the greatest professors I've ever, you know, taken a class with. She was the teacher um, in, for that course. And so I fell in love with it because we were going over a lot of the major Psycho- uh, psychological disorders such as you know bipolar disorder major depressive disorders the schizophrenia spectrum and things like that and I just became enamored and then I was like oh okay let me do this now so I, I was too far ahead in my courses to drop the pre-med because um, if I would have dropped the pre-med for my um I guess my course catalog, I would have spent another year or two at school. So I was just like, no, let me just finish through so I can get through the four years. But like, let me go into the mental health field. So then I started, you know, joining the psychology club. I got into Psychi, which is the National Honor Society for Psychology Students, um, and started going that route. Um, And then also seeing how the psychology department um, kind of rallied with the city because of Katrina. So um, I mentioned earlier that I went down to New Orleans um, in 2005. So I was a freshman when Hurricane Katrina hit the city in New Orleans. And so got displaced, came back to the city. And so just seeing the devastation afterwards and seeing how, you know, Norman C. Francis, um, our past president and how he rallied the Xavier community to like be a part of the community and help rebuild New Orleans and seeing the psych department like offering mental health services and kind of being there for the residents of New Orleans kind of you know sparked that 
internal, like, okay, I like to help people. This is how I can help people. Um, and so that's, I think that also played a factor into it. Um, and then my parents, um, my parents are pastors. Um, they do counseling. So I think being around them kind of played influence, especially with my father who, um, has his degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, and so originally I started actually my grad school career in 2010, 2011, but then, you know, life happens, got married, had a baby, you know, and, um, with unforeseen circumstances, my husband had to move to the East coast. And so they ended up leaving that program, uh, prematurely, but then I went back to school in 2014 and here I am six years later doing what I exactly, you know, set out to do. Okay, so two things. There are parents. I don't want people to think we have different parents. We have oh. the same parents, guys. Yeah, I said our parents. <laughs> oh, I said my parents? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, our, our parents. parents. Sorry, our parents. Well, I didn't okay. know that our parents, my bad. Just for the listeners, we are, yeah, we have the same mom and dad. Oh, yeah. And we're then, sisters. you know, I will say this. I'm glad you found your passion in therapy, but, you know, I still wanted you to be an OBGYN because I wanted you to deliver my babies for free. So I just want to put that on the record that I'm a little upset you didn't go that route. It's because, okay. you know what I mean? I mean, I have my kid for free, low key, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know, you were supposed <laughs> to be the one delivered. I know that was a dream, but you know, it is, it is what it is. We're here. We're here though. But I know, I know obstetricians for the next one. So. <laughs> Thanks, friend. Okay. So we're going to head and move into grieving. So what are signs of grieving for those who don't know? So with grief, um, grief can look different for everyone. Um, So grief is for, you know, just the definition is a natural response to losing someone or something that's important for you. Right. Um, So like I said, it manifests in people very differently. However, some of the more common things we see um, can grief can appear as feelings such as loneliness, sadness, a sense of suffering, you know, um, and that can um, and that can play into how you behave and then interact with other people, right? So that can affect your behavior, such as overeating, undereating, you know, increasing alcohol use or beginning, you know, substance use, um, isolation, you know, especially if it's the loss of a loved one, you're not wanting to have to put on a fake smile. Um, you don't want to have to talk to people. So you might just isolate yourself. So that way you don't have to really engage with anyone. Um, insomnia or hypersomnia, which is too much sleep or like overall sleepiness throughout the day we're just not really doing anything but like kind of sleeping on and off throughout the day um restlessness is one and then a really big one that people don't actually understand or not understand but um don't realize is somatic pain and that's physical pain that's often localized to a particular area it's constant and it's stimulated by movement so it's normally that's describing as like you're cramping you're gnawing you're aching um sharp pain um and then another one depending on what the situation that you're grieving, maybe a loss of, um, the loss of sense of an identity. Um, so you may feel like, let's say, for example, you lost a child, um, especially if they were at a young age, right? And so then, you know, two, three years later down the line, you meet someone new. How do you share that you were a parent to this child? How do you make that like story happen? Like, oh, I do have to share with you that I am a parent, but I'm not really a parent because the child's no longer here, but I'm still their parent, right? Because even if they're no longer here, you're still their parent. Um, so those are some of the signs um, of grieving that um, I normally see in my day to day. 
And how common is um, somniotic pain and hypersomnia? I've never heard of those. Um, to my knowledge, I don't have the stats on that, but somatic pain, let's say out of, let's for, I can only speak to my personal experience. Let's say out of my, the clients that I currently see and have seen in the past, I would probably say that I've gone through grief and or traumatic experience. Somatic pain is probably at least a good six out of 10. Um, and that might just be like a headache or like my shoulders are always hurting or I'm carrying pain like in my pelvic area or in my back. Um, hypersomnia, really don't hear too much about it. So I don't have the numbers on that. Um, in my in my personal experience, I hear more of insomnia um, Okay. in my experience. What are some non-traditional signs of grieving or are there non-traditional signs of grieving? Um, it's really hard to say that um, what non-traditional signs are because it manifests so differently um, in everybody. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But for example, um, even with grieving within yourself can look different at different stages, right? Um, for example, I lost my best friend back in 2011. And so when I knew he was sick and so I was grieving, you know, I was beginning to start to grieve, right? Because I knew... I thought, you know, I was hopeful that, you know, things were going to get better when, especially when he went into the hospital, but I kind of knew like, okay, he may not make it out of the hospital. How are we going to process this? Right. Um, I was definitely younger and not as knowledgeable as I am now. So um, the way I looked at it, it's different now being older, but um, I just know I went through cy different cycles of grief. So when he first passed away, I was devastated that first like week or so I was, I could not function. Um, my husband pretty much had to take care of me. Um, and it also did not help that I was pregnant during the time. So um, it was definitely it was definitely an emotional toll. But then three weeks later or yeah, I would think three weeks later by his funeral, I wasn't crying anymore. Like I couldn't cry like when I was literally at his funeral and it it bothered me because I'm like, why am I not crying? Right. I should be like boohooing at this point, even, you know at his final resting place, I didn't cry. And I was like, I struggled with that. And I was like, why am I not crying? Um, and, you know, then I didn't realize it until, you know, years later that that's just a cycle of grief, right? It's just some days are better than others. Um, there's moments where I'll hear his favorite song and then I'll start crying or, you know, or I'll hear um, or see his mom like post something on social media and then it'll make me think of something. Um, but then, you know, or in that moments where I'm laughing at him and I'm like, okay, I remember those memories and things like that. And it's a good memory and I'm not in tears. So even with that grief looks different within a person as well. But I, I back to your question though, I really wouldn't say there's non-traditional signs of grievings because it manifests in people so differently and different stages of your life as well. Now, is it the five stages of grieving? Is that a process? There are the five stages of grief. Did you want mm -hmm. to go through that? Yeah, what are the five stages? Well, the first, um, the first, the five stages of grief and loss are the first one is denial and isolation. Second stage is anger. The third stage is bargaining. The fourth stage is depression. And the fifth stage is acceptance. Now with that, um, with bereavement and, you know, grief like that, these stages are interchangeable. So they don't necessarily happen 
in order. Um, they can okay. happen. They can happen in order, absolutely. But they also cannot happen in order. So you want to be mindful of that. Because if you're like, if you're automatically angry or like you're bargaining, people are like, oh, you skipped, you know, the first stage of denial. It's like, mm, did they though? Or is that their first stage? Is that they're angry? Um, right. And so, the, and then you can fluctuate between those stages too. Um, would you like me to explain which what each stage means? Yeah, you can give us short for okay. each one. So the sure so the first one is denial, and so that pretty much you know breaks it, boils it down to um, this isn't happening, this can't be happening. Um, that you're just really denying the fact that that person is gone or you've experienced that loss. Um, isolation, I spoke about that earlier, is kind of just staying away from your loved ones, kind of being alone in your own little bubble, just kind of not really engaging with anybody in your support system. Um, the second stage is anger. Um, everybody knows what anger is. This is this is a very intense emotion. It's um, deflected from our vulnerable core, and then it's expressed as anger, right? And so the anger might be aimed at inanimate objects, complete strangers, friends, or family. Um, and the anger very may well be directed at the dying or deceived loved one too. So there might be some days where you're upset that the person is no longer here as well. Um, the third stage is bargaining. Bargaining is the normal reaction to feelings of helplessness and vulnerability um, as a need to regain for control. So if only we done this kind of statements, right? If only we had been a better person. Oh, if only I had called them or if only I, you know, picked up their phone call or if I would have looked at their text messages, they wouldn't have gone, you know, they wouldn't have gotten in the car. They wouldn't have gone to the store. They wouldn't have gotten the car accident, right? Especially in situations where you may have fought with a person the last before they passed away. It's like, maybe if I didn't fight with them, they wouldn't have ran out into the street and it's all my fault, right? So that's kind of like the bargaining stage. Um, fourth stage is depression. Um, this is normally associated with mourning. Um, so there's two types. So there's, of course, you know, the initial stage of reaction to, you know, relating to the loss, and which is normal. And so kind of, you know, worrying about the cost and the burial, kind of those kind of things. Um, while the second type of depression is more private and it's kind of the preparation to separate to say goodbye to the loved one and then stage five is acceptance um unfortunately not everyone reaches this stage uh but this is kind of where you're at peace with the loss um it no longer triggers you in a way that negatively impairs you or impacts you um that you've accepted it doesn't mean you stopped grieving them doesn't mean you stopped missing them doesn't mean you stopped loving them it's that you've accepted that they're no longer here um and this is kind of this these kind of five stages are really regarding a loss of a loved one um these ones are kind of really you can apply it to other losses but these main five stages of grief are usually applicable to when you lose a loved one um, by death. Um, and so that's what acceptance is. Learning a lot. I hope everyone's learning a lot too. My question, just another follow-up question is like people that you see like someone died like 10 years ago, can that cycle the five steps like repeat itself with grieving? Like is there ever a point where you don't stop grieving? Like you've accepted it, but on their birthdays you cry. Like on Mother's Day you cry if you lost your mom. Like is there does grief continue? Does it stop? Um, it's very subjective. Um, yeah, there's some there are some people that, you know, cry every 
you know, holiday or every anniversary or their birthday, like you said. Um, yeah, and there's, yeah, you could be 10, 15, 20 years down the line and still going through the cycles. Um, so it really just depends on your personal journey. Some people, even if you are at the acceptance stage, you're still honoring them. Like, because you, you, you're still human, right? We're allowed to feel our emotions. Um, yes. I don't, I personally say don't that think. Again. We're allowed to feel our emotions. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're allowed to feel our emotions. We're human, right? Um, right. We're allowed to make mistakes, you know? It, it's We're human. We're fallible, right? And so um, with grieving, it's just understanding, like, this too shall pass. However, I'm allowed to feel my feelings. And, okay. you know, I always encourage my cl- my clients if they were ever to, you know, tell you about me, I will tell you to cry in session. <laughs> I will tell you to cry um, at any point because it's really, it's a great release. It's a release of trauma. Your body's just physically releasing that stress. It's releasing that weight. And that's okay to cry. Cry in the shower, cry in your bed, you know, but don't spend hours crying, right? Give yourself that five, good five, 10, 15, 20 minute cry, you know, pick Mm -hmm. yourself back up and be like, all right, I got this. Like, I got it out. You know, it's the same thing like hitting a punching bag when you're upset, like you hit it, you're like, okay, I feel so much better. Crying is the same kind of physical uh, and psychological release as well. Okay. That, That makes sense. Yeah. I heard it's good to cry. Do Black women express signs of grieving differently from other races and genders? And then, if so, what are the signs to look for? So that's a very complex question. I've reached out to friends to answer this question. Some of my colleagues in the field, I've reached out to them to ask. Um, In my personal experience and my clinical experience, no. However, as a Black woman, I and you know, working with African-American community, I know that we um, are a collective, right? We use collective care where we grieve together, whether that's with your family, that's with your friend, that's with your play cousins, that's with your church or your place of worship. You, the individuals in the Black community tend to grieve collectively. You're, it's very rare that someone grieves alone because, you know, even if you said something sad's happened, your friends are like, oh, I'm coming over right now, right? Or, you yeah. know, if, you know, if a friend lost her grandma, you're going to be over the house like, okay, we're cooking for you. We're making sure you're good. Like, we're going to take care of you because I think that's just been taught in our, you know, our families throughout the generations. Um, And so, you know, but if you find yourself not being able to do things in your life that you used to enjoy or, you know, things that you used to do, you're finding yourself kind of not being able to do daily living skills, then it may be time to, you know, get help or seek support. But also that brings up um, within the Black community, we do grieve differently, especially in certain situations, especially in the past. I mean, it's always been relevant, but just, you know, the past few years with, you know, social media and cell phones, you know, watching our brothers and sisters being killed by the police. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that adds, which we can talk about this for hours, but that just adds another layer of grief that we don't realize that we're dealing with. Right. We have to deal with the media being biased. We have to deal with people on social media saying, well, they deserved it. What were they doing? What's the real story? Like without giving the, you know, the benefit of the doubt, like at the end of the day, this was a human life that was taken away. Even if they were a mass murderer, they still don't get deserve to get shot by the police unless they were actually like literally shooting at the police right Right. and so we have to um you know the grief experience can be different between races i think on that level right because um there's so much significant light uh significant end of life issues due to racism that can complicate 
the grief process, like I was saying earlier, right? So like mm-hmm. also examples include, you know, which is part of grief. Let's say you have um, an, you know, like grandma or grandpa or your, you know, your parent, as we get older, our parents are getting older, right? And so, you know, putting them in hospice or putting them in a facility, right? You know, experiencing hospice workers, you know, committing microaggressions and proper care in the healthcare system, right? You know, I could talk about my experience as a Black woman giving birth. Um, I'm sure you could spend a long time on what that implication or how they were treated in the hospital affects their mental health and their grieving process, right? Especially if, mm-hmm. let's say, if they didn't come out successfully or the baby didn't come home with them, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, or like, even problems with funeral workers, that can also add to, you know, another level that other races may not experience because they may be treated differently. So that also can complicate the grieving process, or not complicate, but just add another complex level to grief that Black people experience. Okay, that's interesting. Now, I heard, I don't know how true this was, my therapist said that Black women tend to show grieving and depression through anger. Is that is that a factor? Is that true? Um, so everything, so with mental health, everything can be. Not everything mm-hmm. is definite. And a lot okay. of people struggle with that. Um, and so I try to educate people like, language matters right so i try to use language to describe things because not everything is always the same for everybody especially when it comes to mental health right like with our diagnostic you know manual yes there's certain criteria you have to hit in order to be diagnosed right but it can manifest in people so differently but that's a good that's a um a valid point that your therapist said that uh, I can see that I can see that being very true, but that's with depression in any race um, okay. is anger. Like a lot of people show anger and irritability and that's just a sign of depression. It's probably more prevalent in black communities because they're, I think they may be looking for quote unquote anger versus mm-hmm. then if they were looking at, you know, at another community. Um, right. But I can see that being factual, that it is latent anger. And it might be anger just because, you know, society keeps kicking you down. It's, it's one thing after the other. And instead of, you know, coping with it, we, a lot of um, Black women have been, you know, taught, like, you're strong, suck it up, keep it in, you know, get it through. Like, if you have to cry, cry, like, you know, at the end of the night when you're by yourself, right? Don't show that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to feel vulnerable, that kind of causes an internal conflict, right? Like, okay, yeah. I'm feeling this way, but I can't share it with anybody, but I need to share it with somebody. So what do I do? And so then that may turn into, you know, anger and that might be projected onto other people. And like, why is she angry? It's like, no, like literally like, you know, let's actually sit back. I've been, you know, working with great clinicians as supervisors. I've been taught to look past the anger and like what's really going on, especially working with teenagers, right? Because teenagers, they like to be angry. And so I've learned how to look past the anger and be like, what's that need, right? For example, when my kid's always angry, right? We were just like, why is this kid so angry? And so a lot of people, he was African-American. He was about, I think I want to say he was like 17. At the time, he was going on 18. He'd been in and out the juvenile system for years, right? Starting at age like 10 or 11, right? And so he was just very angry and he didn't want, at the moment, he didn't want recovery. He was kind of being forced into this. And 
unfortunately, the people I worked with were just like, oh, write him off, write him off, write him off. They're like, oh, he's just going to be angry. He's going to just go back to jail. Once he turns 18, he's going to go back. And I'm just like, mm, no, nah, there's something else about this kid. I was like, there's something about this kid. And so I took, you know, being a clinician, I took the time to actually get to know him and not really like be punitive when, you know, when he would, you know, use cursory language, kind of use inappropriate language. I was like, okay, let's redirect, let's reframe, right? So eventually I got to know him over the course of the months, comes to find out that this young man was living in a like quote unquote trap house, right? That's his -hmm. house was the trap house. Right. And so all ends in nights and days, his family members would be, or whomever would be in and out the house. Right. He didn't know who was coming in and that, and he had younger siblings. We all come find this out. Right. And so, you know, and you know, we learned more things about his home life, you know, as we got to get to know him, once he started to open up. But if I had just wrote him off as the angry little black kid and was like, Oh, he's going to go to jail anyway he would have ended up there and we would have never been able to find out what's really going on and why he's so angry. He's so angry because he didn't go to bed till four o'clock in the morning. He has to be at school at seven. He's so angry Mm -hmm. because he was supposed to, you know, eat dinner when he came home, there was no food in the house. Right. So you want to think about that when someone's angry, you might want to sit back and be like, okay, what's really going on? Like what's actually, but you know, I'll leave it at that. We can, we can talk about that for, for hours. No, that makes sense. But I, I like the fact that you brought up that Black women are taught not to be vulnerable. We're taught to handle it to ourselves. And that just doesn't make any sense. I feel like we don't appreciate vulnerability like we should. But then again, we're not taught to be vulnerable. We're taught to, like you said, have your five minute cry in the closet and then put on your superhero face mm-hmm. and get to it. So I definitely wanted to highlight like do we grieve differently because we have that mentality put on us versus, you know, other communities to our knowledge, we may not know, but don't face that. They don't face that. Like we do. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a narrative that unfortunately has been passed down for generations. Now that I'm in the mental health field, I, and like millennials and stuff are getting into this field and, you know, Gen Z and stuff, the, that that narrative is being debunked, right? Um, okay. Individuals like myself, a lot of my colleagues were all like, okay, we're, we're not pushing that narrative anymore. Um, we're not mm-hmm. pushing that, like, yes, we're strong because, you know, we're strong, right? But about pushing that narrative of, you know, not being, you know, quote unquote weak. Because what right. is a weak person, right? Um, and, you know, being able to show that vulnerability, we're teaching, like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to show those feelings. It's okay to not know. It's okay to not be okay. Like, it's it's just providing that space. And that's why, one of the reasons why I really want to um, hone in and work within the African-American community, especially with women, is because I can give that space for you to not be okay and be in a safe and non-judgmental space to not be okay. And some people who go to therapy, like, your life could be perfect. You still go to therapy, right? You don't go to therapy because something's wrong with you. It's just a space where you can, you know, talk to someone in a non-judgmental and safe space. Guaranteed, not all therapists are alike. We are all different. It's just like doctors, right? You never know until you meet um, your therapist. However, but, you know, definitely date your therapist. If you do decide to get into therapy, if I can give one tip out, is to date your therapist. Um, Ask them questions. Um, They may not disclose a lot of personal information, but, 
they should be willing to engage with you and have that kind of conversation with you. If you don't feel like it's the right fit, you don't have to, you know, continue with it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But definitely know what kind of therapist you're looking for. If they're sex positive, LGBTQIA positive, um, healthy size positive, like, so do your research, of course. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, the intake, that's where you actually do the dating is during the initial session or the intake session where you kind of sit down, go over, you know, what's going on with you and kind of what problems you're experiencing. The therapist should be engaged with you and kind of building that rapport with you to kind of find out what's going out. And if you guys are a good fit, because you may not be a good fit for them either. And most ethical clinicians will not treat you if they cannot ethically treat you. Um, okay. So I just want to put that tip out there. Can you clarify what a sex positive therapist is? Um. Okay. So I I would say I'm a sex positive therapist. So I am someone who does not shame anybody for their sexuality, right? Whether okay. that's their orientation, how often they have it, with whomever they have it, I'm all for it. As long as you wear a condom and you're a consenting adult, have fun. That's that's what I like to tell my clients. Just say sex is the best sex. So that's sex positive. It's people that it would be someone like telling you I have a kink and you're not like, oh, you have a kink, like you're sh- like kind of shaming them. Um, mm-hmm. Being sex positive would like for someone who's not sex positive, they would call sex workers prostitutes. They okay. would say that all prostitutes are forced into it or like that would actually be a sentence like all prostitutes are forced into prostitution which is not the case right a lot of sex workers choose to be in that industry right um so yeah sex positive is just people who have an open mind about sex moving back into the topic of loss how should we navigate the holidays because the holiday season is coming up christmas and thanksgiving How should we navigate the holidays with the loss of a family member? Yes. So, yes, like you said, winter holidays are coming up. Um, Speaking of winter holidays, um, I just want to make a quick tip. I don't know how you want to insert this, but um, it is darker months now, right? We're in daylight savings time. So I don't know if individuals have heard of what is called seasonal affective disorder, but that is something that um, impacts people throughout the colder months and the darker months of the year. It normally starts in around October or so, goes through March or April, depending. And it's just a short period of time where you you experience depression-like symptoms because of the fact that it gets darker earlier. Um, okay. And so I just want to put that note there. We can talk about that later, but I can send you a link for a seasonal affective disorder. Um, but how should we navigate the winter holidays with the loss of a family member? Losing a family member can be very tough during the holidays, right? There are ways that the family member can be acknowledged and included in the celebrations, right? For example, you can do a holiday, making a holiday tradition, you know, making their favorite recipes. Um, you can make it, you know, for Thanksgiving, right? And for like during Christmas, you can make an ornament, right? Um, making a photo album on Shutterfly, if you have the ability to do that, or in Google Drive, Um these apps these days are amazing, right? There's apps that you can actually link like other people's email addresses to and you can have, you can create like a photo album. So you can upload pictures there and you can have um, your elder members or members of their family or something like that. You all can record stories and um, share those kind of stories or memorable stories with them. Um, so there's, there's a, some ways, you know, to navigate um, a loss. If this is the first at first or you know 50th holiday without your loved one and what are some tips on how to celebrate the holidays without feeling sad sadness about the loss of a loved one 
Okay, so there's a time and place for all your feelings and emotions. Um, if you find yourself feeling sad during the holidays, you know, due to the loss of a loved one, it's okay to feel sad, right? Um, allow yourself to feel that feeling. However, don't sit in that sadness. Acknowledge its presence and then actually choose to bring yourself out of that space. Like in the main component is actively choosing, right? You have to actively mm-hmm. be aware that this is going on and you're actively choosing to no longer sit in it right and so that's finding something to do that gives you peace in a healthy way reading a book taking a walk you know calling a friend playing a game um etc right taking a bath taking a shower washing your hair doing you know nails and things like that right and also if you want to include or honor the loved one in the holiday tradition you know like i said earlier like making their favorite dish you can have each family member write a funny, memorable story and share it at the table if you are meeting with your family this year, right? Now, with sadness, we don't want to equate sadness with depression, right? Because those are two separate things, right? I, w- I just wanted to say that sad is a temporary emotional state in which you can still feel other feelings and emotions like happiness and joy. With depression, that is a clinical diagnosis. You cannot diagnose yourself with depression. I see a lot of memes and infographics out here saying you have depression. No, unfortunately, you cannot self-diagnose yourself with depression. Yes, there are self-assessments and tools, but seriously, if you really think you do have depression, I truly advocating you reach out to a mental health professional um, because you cannot self-diagnose yourself with depression, right? So that's a clinical diagnosis, right? So first and foremost, Um, but with depression, it's a chronic state of sadness that impairs you in different aspects of your life, like socially, relationships, familial, family relationships, on your job, um, and your functionality, right? Like your eating, your daily living skills. If you're finding yourself, you're only showering once a week when you shower every day. If you're only finding yourself eating once a day or once every three days, um, you know, because you're just in such a chronic state of sadness and, um, melancholy actually that -hmm. you can't function then yes there that might be signs of depression um and you can no longer feel other positive emotions um so this definitely sounds like you please reach out to a mental health professional um and also there's a way you also could skip the holiday as well if um you know this is for example with my best friend that passed away he passed away two days he passed away the night before Thanksgiving giving um and so for me around this you know if I can you know be honest with you all out there this is a trying time of year for me come November um I didn't realize this until two years ago um that November was um a triggering month for me um I've noticed that about two years ago I noticed that I was being angry a lot right? I was being angry a lot. I noticed that I was picking fights with my husband over like the smallest things or I was getting like really um, emotional over like the smallest things when it shouldn't have been like an issue, right? I found myself yelling at my children more and like being just short tempered at work. And I'm just like, what is this feeling? I can't. And then like, it's either that or complete like, oh my God, overthinking what's going to happen. Why am I so sad? And so I realized, you know, talking to you know, family and friends and coworkers, they're like, okay, go to therapy. So I was like, okay, let me go to therapy. So I signed up and I went to therapy and I think it was like a week before his death anniversary date. I was, you know, sharing that with my therapist. So when I told my therapist his death date, she was like, you know, that's in like a couple days. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah. I was like, I looked at my phone. I was like, oh my God, it is. So do you think it might be related to that? And then she definitely gave me, you know, some history and things like that. And then I put two and two together and I was like, 
oh my gosh, that must have been. And also, there's other things going on in my life. I think that compounded with it. But mm-hmm. I think the um, underlying issue was that his death anniversary was coming up. And so it's always been an issue for me. Um, and so now that I realized, you know, two years ago that this was the case, I'm more prepared, right? So I know come November, I'm going to, and I think it's also coinciding with daylight savings time. I need, I know I need to check in with myself more regularly. I know I need to increase my self-care techniques. I need to, you know, read more books. I need to be active um, because with my grief, I sit. And so I know that I need to be more active to know that, you know, okay, keep pushing, keep being active, keep engaging with people. Don't isolate because I know that's what something I would probably do if that happened. It's good to know that therapists go to therapy. We do. That's a question you should ask your therapist too. Like, do you have a therapist? <laughs> no, seriously though. We we all we all do. I and Kylie encourage um, everybody to go to therapy. We're wonderful, but you know, I'm just saying that because I'm kind of biased. But you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a therapy advocate as well. Wonderful. Um, so I definitely agree. Now we are in a pandemic this year. Hit, yeah, we are. Um, out of nowhere. And most of us are probably working on like eight, nine months of being away from home. And unfortunately, there are some people who have lost a loved one during the pandemic. So how should they navigate that with the, such a traumatic, what it would seem like a traumatic loss? Um, With that, you know, definitely allow yourself to grieve um if you need you know there are support groups if you know you're not ready for therapy there are virtual there's a lot of grief and especially unfortunately with covid a lot of support groups for um individuals who've lost loved ones to covid have arised and most of them are virtual and national so that's something you can look into for that too um and just you know staying safe and just you know knowing that you know, you can do, you can control what you can control. So, you know, wearing your mask, washing your hands, being vigilant, you know, really not going out and about. Um, But that's one way you can, you know, navigate the holidays. Um, Grieving with the loss of a loan, just, you know, similar to regular grief, you know, just kind of bringing yourself into um, a space that brings you peace in a healthy way. Do you know any COVID virtual support groups off the top of your head? No, but with the resources that I'm going to give you at the end of our session should have them. Okay, perfect. That'll work. Okay, so knowing that like it is a pandemic and some people are opting not to spend the holidays with family this year, of course, due to safety. um, What are some ways to handle spending the holidays for the first time away from family? during COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's repetitive, um, but, you know, it's not so much fun, you know, because Zoom fatigue is real, but virtual platforms, um, you know, there's Zoom, there's Skype, there, if you have, you know, if you're an iPhone um, or an Apple person, you know, FaceTime, Android, Google Duo, um, even House Party. House Party, I think you can have up to eight people and then you can play games, like, so it's really interactive. Um, okay. So, yeah, there's things you could do, like, First and foremost, that's the best one, right, um, is virtual and, you know, create a schedule with your family, right, with the people that you want to engage with, like, okay, on Thanksgiving, you know, I have, let's say I have 
you know, for example, I have family on the, I have family on the East coast, the the Midwest and the West coast. Right. So for example, like, okay, with my East coast family, we're all going to, you know, do a zoom call at two from like two to two 30. We're all going to like, you know, show our meals or if we're still prepping for dinner, we're all going to sit and like talk for an hour or so. And then like my Midwest people were, I'm going to call them at four, my time, three, their time, have that conversation. And then again, at six, my time on the East coast at three with my West coast people. Right. And just kind of mm-hmm. creating a schedule, but everybody has to agree to the schedule. Right. Um, especially if you are in different time zones, please factor that in. Um, if you are in different time zone, especially if you have international family members. Um, but yeah, but you could definitely do that. And then, you know, bring some music, food, and liveliness to the connection. There's a bunch of card games. They've made a bunch of card conversation card games that you can use. You could do Taboo through it. I've seen a um, few other games that you can play. Um, but, you know, if you can safely social distance with, like, your friends in town, let's say you, like, you're from... Um, a different state or different city that you currently live in, but you do have friends, you know, if you can safely distance, um, it's better to have it outside. I know weather, you know, permitting, especially on the East Coast here where where it may rain, you could do it outside, right? Um, even if you get your friends together, get like, you can rent a tent, you know, if money allows that. But, um, you know, if not six feet apart, you know, wear a mask. Um, it may be plausible, but, you know, definitely always remember to mask up, wash your hands and use common sense. Those are good tips. So for those people who might be around family members this year um, and they may feel triggered being around their families for the holidays, um, we're going to move into that segment, kind of just talk about what it's like to be with your family um, if they trigger you. And so what is trauma? Trauma is the response to an event that is deeply distressing or disturbing. Um, For example, I'll just give you kind of a few examples, a car accident, a natural disaster, a sexual assault, physical, um, emotional, sexual abuse, um, a carjacking, a robbery, right? So those are tra- those are traumatic events, but trauma is the response to those events, right? Because um, it's important to know that trauma is the result of the event. It's not the event itself, right? Because um, it affects people differently. If I have time, I can give you an example. So back in, I want to say when I was in grad school, I was in my second year of grad school. It was the summertime and I was in a summer class. It was me and they my friends have allowed, they have given me permission to share their story. Um, and it was about four of us, four to five of us in a room. We were just, it, it, we were in between classes. So a couple of people went downstairs to go get drinks. And we were just kind of like hanging, like coffee drinks. And we were just hanging out to like before, you know, going back to class. And so we were kind of hanging out, chilling. And one of our classmates kind of, she fell over and like off her chair. And at first we thought she was joking because we, we knew this girl, right? So first we thought we were joking. So we were calling her name. We're like, what's going on? And then she started to convulse, right? And so we're like, okay, what's going to happen? So my friend Yolanda, she jumped in and started immediately giving CPR, right? I'm running off to go find um a professor because at this point i'm like okay we need to find like an adult adult right (laughs) like i'm an adult but we need to find like an adult adult so i'm like i'm running around looking for a professor and so i'm like okay and then i my other friends like we're like call 911 right and so she's so two of two there's four of us that are responding to this our, our classmate on the ground right now so me and my friend yolanda jump into action our two other friends are kind of hesitant because I remember their faces very well. They were scared. Like they were extremely scared watching like 
Yolanda perform CPR. So I'm like, okay, so I ran out the room. And so when I come back, so I asked my friend Sarah, who was calling 911, I was like, what are you doing? And she like, she couldn't do anything. Like she was like shaking, right? So I ended up taking the phone from her. And I think my mom, I think, I think it kind of actually boils the fact that me and Yolanda are both mothers. And so both of our mom instincts kicked in because I took the phone from my friend and I started talking to the dispatcher and I was very calm. I was very collected. I told her where we were, what was going on and how my friend is currently providing CPR, put the, you know, dispatcher, I put Yolanda on speaker, they were handling her. Then I turned to my two friends who were visibly upset. Like one was shaking, one was, her name's Christine. She was visibly shaking and crying like she was literally mm. having a panic attack in the moment and so i go to her start to calm her down start to do breathing exercises 911 they show i mean the emt show up they take her out they end up having to use the defibrillator to restart her heart comes to find out our classmate suffered from a heart attack and if yolanda had not jumped in when she did she may well have died and so with that itself right watching your classmate have a heart attack can be traumatic mm-hmm. Right. But speaking to all three of them, we all have had different responses since. Right. So, for example, myself and Yolanda, yes, we were like, oh, my gosh, how this happened? How could this happen to somebody so young, so, you know, healthy? And so with me and her moving forward, we weren't experiencing what you would experience traumatic symptoms right which we'll get into later like we didn't experience those right i can say for myself that i did not experience that while christine had acute ptsd she was having flashbacks she was having nightmares she couldn't sleep she couldn't rest and she couldn't eat right she really like could not function to the point where her mom had to come down to help her right and so like i said everybody responds to trauma like a traumatic event differently and that's what the result that's what trauma is it's that result so for me and yolanda there was no trauma for us right even to this day and speaking to christine about it she's still like i still like i when i was talking to her about it we were on video conference i still see her getting visibly upset like even talking about her experience with it and so even now this is what almost six years later five or six years mm-hmm. later now she's still you know every so often if clearly we talk about it she goes back to as if we were right in that moment watching you know Yolanda perform CPR um but you know so that's what trauma is but like I said it it's the results and it also depends on the person because not everybody responds to the same event as or the same traumatic event as each other so you want to be mindful of that as well Okay. And what are some symptoms of trauma? Um, so trauma manifests in so many ways. It's it's hard to tell who's experiencing trauma. However, um, within the community and population that I work with, there are some common trauma-related symptoms that someone can experience. For example, um, hypervigilance, and that's kind of just being like super alert or guarded or like on watch, like you're constantly kind of like, best way to describe it is kind of looking over your shoulders all the time, kind of seeing who's out there, right? Or what's out there. Um, nightmares, trouble sleeping, um, irritability, loss in activity, loss in interest in activities, not loss of activities, excuse me. Okay. Um, and with the loss of interest in activities, like you no longer like, I like to read, right? So if, you know, I was experiencing trauma, it might be like, I haven't picked up a book in like six weeks, or, you know, I'm no longer finding joy reading books. I no longer like to play video games anymore. Like I'm no longer finding, you know, joy in talking to, you know, my family members, right? And mood swings. One of the biggest ones are mood swings. And it's like, but it's so significant. You're going from okay to not being okay in a matter of like seconds or minutes. It's very quick. Um, And so those kind of 
those kind of symptoms we kind of watch out for um, regarding trauma. Are family traumatic experiences different from other traumatic experiences? Yes, they are. Um, so with, for the most part, with um, traumatic experience regarding your family, it usually affects your ability to relate to other people later in life um, okay. versus living through like a natural disaster or a car accident. In your experience, how does grief and trauma relate to one another? So this is a really good question too. So um, grief and trauma go hand in hand, but I like to say you can you can experience grief without having trauma. You can experience trauma without grieving. But mm-hmm. to answer your question, grief is related to trauma because a death can be traumatic, right? Especially if it's a sudden illness, a death in the family, COVID, right? Like your family member was fine. Two days later, they got sick, they're in the hospital, they're on a ventilator, they died within a week, right? Like that kind of sudden loss, right? Or like something with cancer, right? And so trauma is related to grief because you have, you lose a lot of things when it comes to trauma, right? There's can be a loss of identity, a loss of control, a loss of, you know, financial stability or relationships. Let's, for example, say, for example, you're in a domestic violence or inter, well, domestic violence, but we like to call it interpersonal violence, right? And so let's say you are in an IPV relationship and you're really close to, let's say, your, you know, your abuser's family members, but then you decide to leave that abuser, then that connection to his or his or her side of the family is now gone, right? So mm-hmm. you might lose that, right? And so that can also be grief, right? Because I lost the only support, right? Um, so you can still be grieving all those things, um, even if you're years away from the perpetrator, right? Like if you, especially if you lost financial support um, and things like that, you kind of, especially this is usually seen in domestic violence and IPV relationships that, um there's still grief of the loss of the relationship because there might've been a loss of stability. There may have been a loss of like family relationships, even with their own family members. Cause their own family members are like, why didn't you stay? Right. And so they don't mess with you anymore because you left the relationship and they really wanted you to stay. Okay. That makes sense. And um, just for those listening, I'm having Aaron walk us through what trauma is, what symptoms are, just so people can be aware and knowledgeable and then to see how it affects you if your family members trigger you. So what are ways to deal with the family member who triggers you? Um, so there are some, so that's a really good question too. Um, so depending on what the trigger is, like this is definitely again subjective. So it depends on what the trigger is, but for a general you know, answer, setting real clear boundaries, first and foremost like language that will and won't be tolerated around you, especially if you have family members that kind of talk about your weight or your appearance, right? Or, you know, refuse to address you by your pronouns or, you know, by your name that you've chosen for yourself, right? Um, where, like, another boundary is where you'll see them and for how long, right? It's like, okay, I'm only going to see you at grandma's house for 30 minutes. I'm only going to see you at auntie's house for 20 minutes. I refuse, I'm not going to uncle's house. I'm not going to this cousin's house, right? So if you get, because, you know, some families do house jump, 
pre-COVID, a lot of people do house jump, right? So more than likely with COVID, that's not likely going to happen, but who's to say for next year, right? So if your family tends to house jump in a house and or neighborhood or area is triggering for you, just don't go like, I'll just skip that house. Like I'll meet you at the next house, um, right? So those are kind of setting boundaries, right? Of what you will and will not, you know, do and kind of, you know, setting, letting them know what you'll be accepting of. And if you can't be, if you, if you have the ability to not be around them, then don't be. How should one navigate with being around your family? Say they don't trigger you, but you dread. So how should you navigate with being around family when you dread being around them? Well, if you, I always tell my clients, if you don't, if you don't have to go, then don't go. Right. I don't want to put myself in a situation where I don't want to be, if I can avoid it, family or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You at the end of the day get to choose who has access to you. Right. And so with that, like I said earlier, setting boundaries, right? Having an exit plan, um, bringing stuff to occupy time, like bringing a book, bringing the video game system or bringing like a coloring book or something like if you knit or like a Sudoku or crossword puzzle, right? Do something to occupy your time. Um, And you can also bring a supportive person with you. Like, hey friend, can you know sit with me for an hour? And it's easier to be like, especially if you bring a friend, that's a way you can kind of get out of things like, Hey, my friend actually has a go. They have an emergency at the go. Right. And so, and also that other supportive friend can support you when you want to leave, or if something happens to you, that's triggering, you don't really have to make that decision alone. There's going to be somebody there that can walk you through it or be like, all right. Um, all right, let's go. Right. Cause with the, um, the supportive person, you can use, um, a safe word. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we actually talk about that later, but I'll say it. I'll say it right now, too. But, yeah, say it said, like, if you do bring a supportive person with you, having a safe word, like if something's getting too real for you or is it, it's too much to handle, just, you know, saying that word gives that person the know, like, all right, it's time to go. And especially having an exit plan, like, all right, we're going to my grandma's house. X, Y, Z is going to be here, right? If I get here at five, I can leave at six before so-and-so shows up at like 637, right? So that way you can Mm -hmm. kind of, if you, there's certain, if there's particular family members that you want to avoid, if you can time it where you either come before or after them, then you could do that. But if they're going to be in the house the first minute you get in there, they set a time limit, whether that's two hours, an hour, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, especially with COVID now. And that's a great, like, I don't want to say great excuse, but that's a great reason to not be around people. And it's like, I don't feel comfortable being around people. I don't want you to get you all sick. I statements are wonderful. Um, yes. Also, that's another way too, is using I statements. Um, people are less likely to be defensive when you say I statements versus saying you y'all get on my nerves. I don't like being around here, like things like that. Okay. And um, this next question is kind of, it's deep. And I know you can only touch on it for so long, but I want this to be a future episode. But um, it's known in the Black community that especially people that have abusers, sometimes family ignores their abusers, especially if it's like a sexual abuser and they're not, they're not believed. Or if this person has physically abused them, you know, our culture tends to cover things up. And I hope that that narrative definitely changes. But how should one navigate being around their abuser if one, they haven't told their family that that person is an abuser or if they told their family and that person is still welcome around the family? I would highly encourage my clients to not be around their abuser, especially if the family knows and still allows the abuser to be around. At the end of the day, that's not a safe space for you. 
I don't care who it is. <laughs> I don't care how long they've been in the family. I, I don't care. I will tell you, do not go because that's not a safe space for you regardless of having all the boundaries, all the words, all the setup and coping skills. Nothing's going to prepare you to be like in that close proximity with your abuser, especially since your family knows that this happened and A, is refusing to believe you or B, does believe you, but yet this family member still is around. So that's what I would say first and foremost. However, if let's say it's unknown, um, like I said, set a schedule. If you could find out when they're going to like, if you really don't like, I really would highly encourage you not to go period. If you know, they're going to be there. Um, but if you feel compelled to go, cause at the end of the day, it is your choice to go. Um, I would have that schedule again. Like if you can find out when or if they're going to be around, it would be that mm-hmm. or get there, you know, early. And so you can stay, help set up, grab your plate and leave. Um, this is with Thanksgiving and or Christmas, depending on whatever holiday, if you're choosing to be around family. Um, mm-hmm. Because the long-term effects for, even if you're in there for five, 10, 15 minutes, an hour, your whole energy may be off for the rest of the week, for the rest of the month, for the next three months, right? It may actually make you relapse, whether mm-hmm. that's relapse in drug or alcohol use, or just relapse in your own mental health recovery. It may make you really revert back to as if you were back there again, reliving that. Um, and it may mm-hmm. actually cause you to dissociate. And um, so that's something you don't want to put yourself into if you don't really have to and to have that hard conversation with a family member um, I can encourage you um, if you are listening and you're trying to figure out how to have that conversation with somebody um, find the the most positive supportive person in your family that may sit down and be hearing may be willing to hear what you have to say. Um, Unfortunately, there may be family members that won't listen to you. However, that's where friends come in or family, like we like to call them. Mm -hmm. That's when those people come in. Um, And so that, like I said, if you do happen to be around them, you have another person with you, you have a girlfriend or a a boyfriend, um, platonic or, you know, romantic that can kind of stand up for you in that moment if you can't do it. But I would definitely tell my clients to avoid their abuser at all costs. That's a very... Very good advice. I just know that some people, they don't have the courage um, to step up and speak out. So in this episode, we're definitely encouraging you to step up and speak out. There is someone that can help you. You're you're not alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not alone. And so to uh, wrap up this great discussion, um, how can we be an advocate if we know someone in our family is triggered by a particular family member or if we know that that person has been abused? What can we do as advocates to help them? Speak up. That's the number one you can do as an ally and or an advocate is to speak up and can say, like, you know, let's say it's a cousin, right? Just for an example, like you have a cousin, you know, an uncle abused this person. And so, you know, speak up, check in with them constantly, especially if you're in their space, even if you're not in their space, you know, constantly check in, let's say you're, you know, your cousin's there, but you're not like constantly check in with them, texting them, FaceTiming them. Um, definitely if you can like video sessions, because with video sessions, you can see their body language. You can see like their eyes you can see how they're breathing you can kind of see how their appearance if they're sweating if they're like you know talking really fast or if they're breathing really fast you can see that versus like you know through text and stuff but yes can constantly 
check in with them, right? And then back what I said earlier is creating a safe word to exit. That's huge too. Um, it's just creating a safe word like, okay, before we get into this party, I'm going to say backpack. If I say backpack, whether that's in a sentence or if I just whisper it to you, it's time to go. And then like you have either where, where you can set it up where you can decide to share why you're leaving or if you don't have to, right? Or you can ask that person, you know, if you don't want to like be disrespectful and you're honoring like an elder's home, you could definitely share it with somebody like, okay, I'm leaving here because X, Y, Z. And if they continue, if they, mm-hmm. and the thing is with family, they tend to like, the, they want to push you in the, the direction they want you to go, right? So they might be like, oh no, stay, stay, stay. He's going to leave soon or she's going to leave soon because we don't want to always make an abuser a male, right? There are women right. that do um, abuse men. And actually, there are women perpetrators. So there are women that right. actually abuse children, um, regardless of gender. So I don't want to, you know, make it so that's always male, but let's say the abuser's there, you know, kind of make it, you know, let them know that this is why you're leaving. And if they continue to push you to stay, just walk out. Um, most people don't physically grab you when you leave a room. Um, mm-hmm. it's, I've rarely seen that, um, in that situation, but yeah, most definitely all I can really honestly say is to speak up and just check in with that person and make sure that they are feeling safe. I think that's the best thing you can do. Yes, I like the the idea of a safe word. Yeah, safe word. Um, That's important. And um, so for the advocates out there, like she said, just listen. Um, Make sure you are being a great advocate, being a great friend, cousin, whatever, to help that person. Absolutely. Are there any hotlines or any websites that would be helpful? And um, whatever you do mention, I will make sure that I link in the notes. Absolutely. So first and foremost, regarding grief, you want to go to um, wentcenter.org and that's uh, W-E-N-D-T-C-E-N-T-E-R.org and they are a great organization regarding grief and loss. Um, So they have a lot of like um, tools and tricks and trades and coping skills and like tip sheets. They're really good with tip sheets. Um, so that's a really good one, especially right now with the holidays and COVID. Um, there's also the National Suicide Hotline, which is at 1-800-273-8255. Um, and so that's also 24-7. You will also get a live person at any point of the day. If you do call, they're also, if you don't feel comfortable talking to someone, there also is a crisis test line which is global and you would just text the number 741741 um, that would be the number you text and you can just kind of shoot them a message about what's going on and then someone will respond to you and then also for um, there's a domestic violence national hotline and that number is 1-800-799-SAFE and those four numbers are 7233 and then of course um, RAIN they are the national sexual assault hotline and they also have a chat option if you go to their website Um, but their phone number and that's RAIN R-A-I-N-N and so their number is 1-800-656-HOPE and those four numbers are 4673 and the last one of course you know with regarding the winter holidays alcohol and substance use increases heavily so with that being said i wanted to give the website for the substance abuse and mental health services administration also known as samsa and their website is samhsa.gov 
gov um, and so that's somewhere you can go to if you need help um, if you are fighting addiction or if you're looking for a life of recovery from drugs or alcohol that's a good website um, and resource to use as well well thank you for all those resources i will make sure that i link to them in the show notes and thank you so much for coming to the chair and educating us today and speaking on this topic, this heavy topic that's not talked about often in our culture. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you came to the chair and um, we'll see you hopefully on future episodes of um, Ask a Therapist. Yes, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. You're my very first podcast. I hope I did well. Um, I hope I make my mental health colleagues proud and I hope that someone gets something out of this and learns I'm always available to talk. Um, you can find me at melanatedwellness.net and that's my website. And um, I also will have the link to my social media platform as well through Whitney's link. Thank you. Thanks, Whit. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Black Women Unfiltered podcast. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram at Black Women Unfiltered Podcast. Also, check out our website at www.blackwomenunfiltered.net for weekly blog posts and episode recaps written by our host, Whitney. If today's episode reached you or you know someone who could learn something from it, please click subscribe and share this podcast episode. See you guys next week.